Welcome to another chapter of In The Keep Podcast. I'm your very own prophet of the drowned god, the Motherlode. The Keep is a collective of gaming enthusiasts compelled by the drowned god Cathala to frag and jib one another into oblivion for all eternity. So this is a very special episode. Oh, we are here on episode 64 of In The Heat Podcast, which means it is now time to celebrate the amazing first-person shooters from the N64 console. And we've been uh, baking this idea for a long time, what should we do? And Immorpher brought up the wonderful idea of like, that's when I should come on because we'll just talk about Doom 64 the whole time. So, yeah, Amorpher was the perfect guest for this, and I'm really proud to uh, present <laughs> this whole thing to you. But I will warn you ahead of time. If, you, uh, if you're if you one of those folks who enjoys those illicit substances, whether legal or not, in your home state that, you know, enhance or alter your mental state, this is, uh, this is an episode that either you're going to want to go all the way in with that stuff or maybe just you know like tone it back a bit because we're going to talk about some uh really deep borderline psychedelic shit uh just in terms of like you know the themes of what Amorphid does now it is important to state you know for those who don't already know this Amorphid is you know an amazing musician he's you know featured on the podcast all the time his music is and it's this incredible dark ambient biomechanical sound he's been in many many different amazing quake mods and just featured all over the place like fantastic fantastic stuff but it is very dark stuff amorpher when he's not being a morpher is a biomechanics researcher and he works currently at the uh Oak Ridge National Lab in Tennessee, studying a nuclear magnetic res- resonance, Re- nu- nuclear magnetic resonance, and that really uh, informs a lot of what he does. And we're going to talk about you know transhumanism, and we're going to talk about pro wrestling <laughs> and everything. Like his music, if you like Aubrey Hodges, or if you like. Uh, the Doom 64 soundtrack, the the Quake soundtrack, any of that kind of shit. You're you're gonna love his music, but I will be honest with you and say this is an extremely tangential episode. We're gonna cover a whole lot of topics, and I think that's great. But you're definitely gonna get plenty of video game talk here. We're we're talking about Turok. We're talking about Doom 64, Quake 64, Duke Nukem 64, Perfect Dark. You know all, all the classics. So. Kick back, relax, maybe don't relax too much, <laughs> or do, I don't care, it's up to you. You choose your own ride, enter at your own risk, keep your hands and feet inside the vehicle at all times, and enjoy this wonderful conversation between myself and a good friend. Buckle up, you're about to be in the keep with Amorpher.
I go online as a morpher. I make dark ambient music. I'm getting into making mods for Doom. So my music is used in Quake. I started this journey long time ago. My first gaming system was an NES. And, but it, things didn't start to heat up until I got the Nintendo 64. And when the Nintendo 64 came out, I eventually got it for my birthday. And around that time, uh, games like GoldenEye, Doom 64, and Turok came out. And that was my first exposure to first-person shooters. And then I really became addicted then. This is an excellent segue into the theme of our show today, because we specifically have waited. Like, when did I, how, long, how many months has it been since I was like, you should be on the show? Uh, yeah, I I remember when you asked me, and I was in there trying to fix up some midis. And I'm like, well, if my midi project's not done by then, we'll go by we'll we'll do it by episode 64. Because we have to celebrate the amazing slew of first person shooter games that were released on that console, uh, Doom 64. Probably the most premiere of them for this conversation, anyway. But you know, Golden Eye. You already said Turok, and we're in a special time now when all of these games are being made available for PC and other consoles too. Yeah. And um, so back then uh, I came from a poor neighborhood. None of us could afford a thousand dollar computer. We couldn't justify it to our parents. So what we ended up with is consoles and the first 3d ones that came out like the PlayStation and Saturn and then 64 introduced a lot of us Mm -hmm. to the first person shooter genre. Thinking back, I definitely played GoldenEye like before anything else. So significant. I I don't really count it. People ask like, "What was your first, you know, arena shooter kind of thing?" Like, I don't know if I really count that. But thinking back, like that's probably where it started. Like, I definitely already had it in my mind because of fucking Odd Job uh, <laughs> and that hat, ban the hat, blasting me in the nuts every time. Because my cousin my, Alex, if you're ever gonna listen to this show, you piece of shit would always play his odd job and I did I was like too young to understand what was going on. Yeah, for those who don't know, uh so in GoldenEye was a N64 first person shooter and it was four player multiplayer and you could be odd job and from the Bond movies he was this really short guy and he so his hitbox was so small and basically people would ban him because of cheating. What I would do is there was a level called the archives. And you could shoot the boxes and they'll explode, mm-hmm. but their but their object would still be there. They just wouldn't have a hitbox anymore. So we would play with our radar turned off, and you could go in those boxes and duck as odd job, and people couldn't see you. And if you just by a corner, you could see them, and mm-hmm. you could shoot people from these exploded boxes, and they wouldn't know where it was coming from. Pretty annoying, but I was an annoying teenager. It, it is definitely not the best game looking back, but. At the time, I mean, it was such an advancement, and it was the first time a lot of people, including myself, saw anything like that. Yeah, well, the animations were motion-captured. They mm-hmm. would have people act out the animation, and for explosions, they would tie, they tied someone to a rope, and they pulled that rope without telling them. So it was a true, genuine surprise, and they pulled them over, and that would be the explosion animation. Yeah. So that, seeing that fluid animation was pretty amazing for its time. And then Perfect Dark utilized all the same stuff and arguably went, you know, way better. Yeah, yeah. It just came out so late. A lot of people yeah. were already thinking of the next generation and Perfect Dark look, got looked over. But 
One thing that I kind of miss from GoldenEye and Perfect Dark is how it would handle the missions. So you'd have these levels, and then you would have to go across different parts of the level to find a document to destroy the security cameras. Mm-hmm. Then you could make your exit, and depending on what difficulty level you choose, the more missions you would have. And I kind of miss that in a lot of games. So that yeah. eventually might make a comeback. It was almost sad to kind of like lose the N64 era, but as you said, when people moved on console-wise, we also got a bunch of really cool stuff on the PS1 and then like Metroid Prime, I think, was GameCube. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, the, so Metroid Prime was GameCube, and I think, uh, so from what I remember, that, so that was Retro Studios, and a lot of the people that worked on Turok went to Retro Studios to work mm-hmm. on Metroid Prime. I, uh, you read Retro Gamer Magazine ever? Uh, sometimes a great great magazine like i if anybody out there if you're interested in like the history it's because it's not we're not going to talk about the same kind of shit we talk about on this show that in that magazine necessarily it's much more like that atari zx spectrum these guys are nerds like old Mm. nerds but just to get the history of how video gaming like really came to be what it is now is paramount i think if you're like a true super nerd fan like i am um Shout out to those guys, though. Great magazine. But they do a lot of stuff on kind of how those teams evolved over time. So, like, the team that worked on 007, GoldenEye, and then how they worked on Perfect Dark, and, like, where are they now? And they do all this yeah, really, yeah, really they, good write-ups of write ups that. Yeah, they ended up working on Time Slitters. And if you play Time Slitters, you're like, wait mm-hmm. a second. You could tell. Even though it was yeah. the... Most of Rare was, by then, at, was owned by Microsoft as, like, a second party developer but then the team that worked on time splitters left uh rare and made their own company and you can say hey wait a second the dna for goldeneye and perfect dark are in there but they did a different take the levels are more linear and it's more of like a uh, venture through the past all these games are like so good looking back just in terms of what they were accomplishing at the time on the hardware that they had to work with and that's all. That's always the beautiful thing. We don't really deal with it because I'm more, you know, obviously more of a PC guy. But so we can always just like soup up our hot rods and push it to the limit. But with consoles, you have to engineer within the boundaries you're given. And 64 was actually an outlier in that you could upgrade it, you know, and it was just kind of commonly known that you could just like buy a little chip that allowed you to have better graphics or you know do different things. You could. If you wanted yeah, a vibrating back. controller, you could pop that bad boy in there. It it was a groundbreaking console. Like it, I, I can't even imagine. You know, if you went from having nothing but a Super Nintendo, like because I was a baby when this happened, and then the N sixty four, like the stark difference between what those two consoles were capable of is mind blowing. Yeah, it was very very different, yeah. and you can imagine. The Nintendo audience of now is still kind of the same demographic back mm-hmm. then that was a younger audience. And then when the N64 came out, they came out, I mean, Doom 64 is planned to be a release title. So all these gory first person shooters were just within that first month, couple few months. Yeah. And I think it ruined a whole generation of uh, Nintendo fans because then I got into all these violent games and then the GameCube came out with Luigi's Mansion and eventually it ended up with Metroid Prime. They had time splitters on there. It had a, its own Resident Evil remake on there. But on its release day, I was like, man, where's my 
where's my shooters? I want to shoot some baddies and see their blood on the ground. And it wasn't there at the first part of the GameCube. So it was, it was very weird thinking back of a Nintendo console that came out with all these violent games, like right off the bat. Actually, it is really strange because it's like they went through an era after that where they were like, we will not publish anything you know, with blood or violence of any kind. And as you said, they, they kept their same demographic. And by that, I don't just mean that you know, they appeal to young people. Like Obviously, they still make a lot of games specifically for children. But the... Like my wife is a perfect example. Like the people that played Nintendo religiously then still play those games now, mm-hmm. like all the time. She, I mean, she's got the Switch and she's always buying like the, I want the newest Luigi's Mansion and I want the newest like uh, Animal Crossing is the big one right now. And all, all these games have been just expertly crafted to still appeal to those kids, but also to keep those, the, uh, the adults that were kids when they first came out involved in that community. It's really cool. And it's like totally foreign to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there there was, I think there was kind of like a split what happened to the GameCube. The ones that still wanted the uh, the first party Nintendo titles and the one that, ones that really wanted the third yeah. party titles that they got surprised with on N64. And the N64, I mean, at the time, it, some of the games, the PC ports got roasted a little bit, but the... Mm-hmm. Um, ports of the shooters like duke nukem 3d uh which is duke nukem 64 hexen 64 which was just quake 2 and then uh 64 quake 64 good, and like then quake 2 still they, they were ported um yeah yeah the mm-hmm. it's a, quake 64 is one of the more graphically impressive feats that they got done on the n64 and it's one of the few games where you can use the expansion pack to enhance your graphics but the gameplay frame rate Let's, still remains the same. They balanced I, it. When well. you start off with an engine created by John Carmack, you're in a good shape to like not have things get fucked up later on. Like whereas if you're building, yeah. you're trying to build a house on a, a foundation made of mud or whatever, like it's eventually you'll run into problems. That's what we see all the time, especially in modern games. But yeah, at the time, oh yeah, yeah, you, you try to optimize it and you don't even know where to begin looking right. at. It's with anything. I mean, you're you're a science guy. We'll talk about that too. I, I dabble in some sciencey shit, and everybody knows that like the the more complicated a system is, the more problems can go wrong. You know, you introduce yourself to Newton's second law of thermodynamics. Like he, the more complicated your machine is, the more susceptible it is to releasing friction, and you lose more energy in the process. And that's just a fact that will never escape. So the more complicated your game engine is, the more likely you are to run into shit. Unless it's expertly crafted and lubed to perfection, which is what John Carmack does. Yeah. He lubes, lubes them up real good so you can just slide them right through the gears. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the hard, I think the hardest thing about going back to the N64 is getting used to the controls. Oh, yeah, that's, that's God. I wish there were, obviously you can do it on PC emulators and shit, but like, if you could just customize the controls to your liking would be paramount. It would be amazing, yeah. but... And it depends on the game. Like uh, Doom 64 let you rebind all the buttons. Mm-hmm. It, granted, you had to do it every time you loaded the game, but you could rebind all your buttons. So it depends what game you played. Some games didn't let you. And uh, and there's like modern controllers out now, like uh, um, like Hori has a new one, Brawler has a new one for the N64 that make things much nicer, but you're still dealing with one analog stick. Mm-hmm. And that becomes hard for uh, 
games that let you look where you have to look up and down like uh, quake 64 and quake 2 and i find actually quake 2 a little bit one of the harder ones to control than 64 controller well it's like the the inverted basically inverted looking is, is the big part that really fucks me up because i'm not used to it's crazy because i unlearned that because i definitely when i was a kid did that and it was totally natural and i was good at it but now as an adult i go back to it and i'm like what in the fuck am i doing like why why do i have to you know it's like you're piloting a spacecraft or an airplane with a joystick <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, I've noticed there's a fundamental difference between how Quake 2 handles the joystick and how Quake 64 does. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you interviewed Hakita a while back, he was talking about momentum in the games and how having just a little bit of momentum to the movement makes it much easier to control a player, at least or intuitive. Well, for uh, analog sticks, having a little bit of what they call angular momentum, where mm-hmm. if you t- touch the stick, stick a little bit, and just hold it for a little while. It doesn't move much, but if you hold it for longer, then it starts turning faster. And if you have that little bit of angular momentum, it helps you aim a little bit better on analog stick. And Quake 2 didn't really have much of that angular momentum. So when I play it, I'm always overshooting or undershooting. Mm-hmm. And so I, do, I get three shots in before I can get actually hit the enemy. Ah, God. I don't even want to... I don't even want to like have to go back to it because now I love the night dive port of 64 so so much and and also Turok and I hope they keep doing it. I hope they get more and more properties and just keep doing this because the ability to just play these games uh with you know mouse and keyboard controls is amazing. I love it so much. Yeah, yeah, now um combat wise Duke's, uh, Doom 64 is pretty easy with a mouse and keyboard. Now. Yeah. On the N64 is a little bit more a challenge especially with that original Trident controller. Well, this was crazy. Uh, when I was talking to the all the people over at Ed Software, like I've had Stephen Kick on, and then I also talked to yeah, I had Quasar on as well, and yeah, the Night Dive team. And he, I was asking him like, so did you guys like adjust the difficulty at all? And he's like, no, it's exactly the same. Like we didn't yeah, even did. mess with that. And I was like, yeah, it's so much harder on the controller, like unbelievably. But I'd always assumed that they would had in some way toned it down a bit to compensate for the fact that you you know were shooting these monsters with a controller and they did not at all they didn't care it's made it made it one of the more most difficult games like really kind of ever especially if you're a fucking kid trying to play that you don't have any concept of how this works if you're not a doom kid because a lot of the people that were you know getting doom on n64 had never played the rest of the doom games so you have to learn yeah. all the patterns and everything and simultaneously you have this crappy <laughs> way to shoot but yeah, it translates perfectly once it's on the PC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because it was based on a PC engine, mm-hmm. ported to the PlayStation, then reported to the N64. So it had an interesting life cycle to it. Yeah. Yeah, Night Dive has been doing a lot of hard work getting these ports back onto PC. And like for Doom 64, it's been. 10, uh, 10 years of them working on it. And the guy at night dive working on it, Kaiser, what the name, in, the engine's named after him, the Kex engine, K yeah. and Kex is Kaiser, yep. Samuel Villarreal. He's been working on it for over 10 years now, just learning Doom 64. He had a, he has his own fan port out there called Doom 64 EX, mm-hmm. which was uh, improved upon for the remaster just to get the game going because 
once uh, Midway folded, that source code was lost. So what's in the remaster is what they could reverse engineer out of it. So it's an interesting hybrid, but it's accurate enough to play the original N64 demos. So that's a pretty damn accurate port. I like to imagine, I hope, that as the future continues to unfold and all these... I don't want to like diss on any particular company, but like the companies that do lose their source code like that, that could be something that would be valuable to another group of people or to preserve the game just in general for the future. I'm hoping that Steven and Sam are like watching stocks and other companies and they're like, Hey, they might crash soon. And they like get in contact with them ahead of time. Like go ahead and start sending that shit over. Now we're, we're, we're transferring the money. Our lawyers on his way. Like, there's like it's like a you can do a little picture of them in an ambulance yeah. chasing after all these dying companies trying to grab their <laughs> missing source code. Yeah. I mean they and they got it for um from I remember they got it for Turok one and Turok two, they got the source code. I wanna imagine Steven he's like in a firefighter suit and like the building's on fire and everyone's dying. He's kicking the door in and running in and like stealing their hard drives. <laughs> Sorry guys. He's fireman carrying a computer down a ladder. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's, people, code. there's people screaming in the background. <laughs> Is it, sorry, we got priorities, folks. We'll come back for you after this. You got the little yeah, trampoline. Well, they're throwing it out of the window. It's bouncing. And- I think uh, companies are starting to notice because uh, it and Bethesda – they see they uh, were approached by Night Dive about Doom 64, and they're saying, Yeah, let's put it. Let's have you guys make the official port. Well, they initially so. were not interested and then came around to it. They realized it was Doom 64 was, or sorry, Doom Eternal was ramping up that it would be cool, like to release it kind of as a little incentive. And that's how they decided to do it because apparently they just at first were like, Eh, whatever. Uh, who cares? Yeah. And yeah. It I'm might have been Hugo. Because Hugo said that Doom 64 was his favorite old school Doom, so maybe he whispered. And you know, Hugo still plays like he plays Doom Eternal on a fucking PlayStation controller, as far as I understand it. Which is like, we're not going to go down that road. But <laughs> yeah, well, with that, uh, with the with the challenge of Doom Eternal, you know, trying to play that on a PlayStation controller, I I envy his skill. Yeah, I, I envy his innocence it's beautiful i'm when i play fps games i'm kind of like a daywalker mm-hmm. where i have so I, I play with mouse look but i have this uh fps pad that was made for the playstation so it has an analog stick on it okay so i connect it to my computer i trick it to thinking it's xbox controller so i play my games with analog movement but with mouse aim i'm so lazy man like i I do not go through the trouble of breaking out emulators and figuring out all that stuff. I just wait for it to come out usually, or I go back and try to like find the original version. I want things to be as simple and easy as humanly possible. I and, think it's growing. I think it's just growing up with the early computers uh, because I remember yeah. when I first got my computer, one of the first games I got for it was Duke Nukem 3D. I already had it on the Nintendo 64 by by then, but I just wanted to see if anyone was making uh, any levels for it with the build editor. And so I got it, and you would have to install it through DOS. You would have to select your sound card, 
and I was like guessing what my sound card was. Mm-hmm. And you had to go through all the graphics options and hopefully cross your fingers that it was correct when you run the program and Duke would run for you and and run decently on your computer. Have you seen uh like the it was maybe a week or two ago, but John St. John was like hinting at like something new about Duke and then all it was was like just this forum post about Duke four D from some People claiming to be an indie studio. I don't have, I have no research on this. I'm just yes, someone sent me that Duke 4D video, and to be to be fair, I don't know who they are, but it it could end up being a a decent project. But the way that's the way the Doom community works. If you're presenting like a project or a community project, you usually have like a beta map to test you have something already started and people can play it then they get excited for that that duke 4d video i didn't see one thing that was original i i have a theory and i i would love for anyone who has any real knowledge about this to come on the show and prove me otherwise i think this is just a stunt to like try to see if randy will send them a cease and desist letter and then like because there's a lot of these properties where I, I don't have any insider knowledge about this or anything, but people will do this where they just try to get that cease and desist letter. So they know who's sending the cease and desist letter so then they can t- like try to talk to them about like, well, how can we get permission? Or they at least know like it can't be done before they, because if they put in all the work to make, you know, a, a proper Duke 4d game and then had it like, cause that happened with reloaded, right? Like they tried to make it an unreal and Fred was way, way into production. And then they yeah. kind of like had to shut it down eventually. And That's right. That's when you mentioned that. I was thinking of what Fred Schreiber was saying when yeah. they were working on that Duke Nukem. And then, then it was more, then it came down to like, well, if we release it, we can't make any money off of it. But I got all these people to feed too. Yeah. We just have to abandon ship. Yeah. So I, I do think that that might be part of it is they're just trying to gauge they're trying to get their feet in the water just to see if there's any sharks swimming around. And if they get bit, then they'll know like just, just your toe though. You don't want to put your whole leg in there. Well, so I remember when, so I'm a, also a big Metroidvania fan. So mm-hmm. super Metroid was my jam on the super Nintendo. And I remember when the, Another Metroid 2 remake was released, mm-hmm. which was a fan project to bring the Game Boy Metro- Metroid into more of a modern light. And it was just made by fans. And they've been working on it for years and years and years. And Nintendo could have sent them a de- cease and desist any time within those five or more, more years. But it wasn't until they released it that they sent a cease and desist. So if these people are working on that project, they might not hear from anything until yeah, like they actually put something out. That's what, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like what on one, on one hand, I want to see people do the projects like, because I just want to know that it's out there, but it's such a bummer if you put in all of the work just to have it shut down later on. Like, and I don't understand why, like I, I really don't understand the policy behind this. Like, if they're not making money off of it and it's promoting your content, I feel like you should just let it happen. I mean, id Software has always yeah. been that way, um, which is amazing. It's the greatest gift probably ever given to the gaming world ever has yes. been the openness of id Software's tech. And then you also have 
situations like with you know Nintendo or any of these companies. Like if you start making, I like uh, a Night Dive totally owns System Shock, like rocking and rolling with System Shock, and they're not trying to shut down Q Master as long as like as long yeah. as you're not selling it, I don't care. And I think I've played a little bit like early stages of Q Master's System Shock remake, and it's like a totally different thing. It's not like they're they're making a remake of the game, you know, with like super modern graphics and everything. And he's very much like preserving the original experience, but with, you know, just some quality of life improvements. And it's really yeah, nice. Yeah. 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 And uh Q Master and I talk every now and then because uh he's always looking for sound improvements for yeah. his project. And if I come across a sound or a technique, then I'd contact him and say, Hey this might be down the pipeline to help out that project. And uh, everyone at Night Knife, they seem more than happy just to let that go, which is really nice. Yeah. Which is really nice. I mean, because you have to kind of let the community express themselves creatively. And yeah. that, and you find out then um, when you release like a new game, game like Doom 2016, well, you have all of this community already involved so you already have a player base to start yeah. from even if the game ends up being totally different it's like oh these people are still talking about doom because the modding scene's keeping it alive so when we release a game it's immediately already going to get a lot of press so it's, it's yeah. and the only reason i think that companies end up cutting down is mostly due to legal law that is if you you can't just have a copyright. You also have to show a record of defending a copyright. And mm-hmm. I think it's a companies don't know where to put that, where they want, where they want to set that balance at. And so some companies just immediately cease and desist. Well, my theory with Nintendo was they're fine letting fans work on things, but once it becomes official, they legal they feel like they legally have to step in. So that's why I think they let the AM2R be de- in development for five years, but they didn't stop it until it was officially released because yeah. that's when the lawyers would say, oh, that's where you can show legal precedent that you defi- defended your copyright. Yeah, so some companies will hit you much sooner with a cease and desist mm-hmm. because they think they legally have to be there. Right. Um, but uh, otherwise, yeah, it's a, it's, it can be a vague area of showing that you've defended your copyright in court. What's interesting about that, because I hadn't really thought about it from the you have to show a record of defending it standpoint, is – so here's an example. I, I don't want to say who it was or what the game was just in case it doesn't happen the way I'm going to describe it. But they were considering you know, opening up a trailer with like a, a Lovecraft quote, like something straight out of one of his books. And they were like worried, like, is there any legal issue with this? And I'm like, it's, it's public domain, so you can totally just use that. Like that – I was trying to, they're from a different country, so they didn't really understand this, I guess. But I, I was like, no, it's totally public. You could just do it, go right after it. There should be no problem with that. And, uh, but they were like, well, what if like Arcane Studios, like they try to say it's similar to their game or some shit like that, or like, it, you know, any of the people who worked on Call of Cthulhu, whatever, any, any of the many games. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. but my, my point was like, if they're going to try to sue you for using a quote out of one of Lovecraft's books, there should be a whole long list of far, you know, far more important and more uh, lucrative lawsuits for them to go through before they get to you and your indie game, right? Yeah, and uh, so I think some places are becoming aware of that because, like, uh, 
this is the weird like for the longest time on TV, the they couldn't do the happy birthday song right. because they believed it was under copyright, and technically it was. And then someone, uh, one of the com- some show did it, and then they got sued. And what happened was the whoever the copyright holder was, it was revealed in court it was a ripoff of an earlier song. Yeah. And so the copyright holder lost the lawsuit, had to pay the their lawyer fees, but then they had to set up a fund for all the uh, other companies places that they end up suing mm-hmm. in the past or getting donations from or not donations, but fees from. And so if you want to like do a hard stake on something like Lovecraft, yeah, you're, you're doing a risk. You're uh, it's going to be a risk to you as well. If you sue, that's what I'm saying. Like you're exposing yourself to so much shit. Like there's, there's plenty of people with more money than whoever it is doing the suing. They're gonna step up and like defend, like no, everybody should be able to use a Lovecraft. Like it's been around for a hundred years. Like you don't, nobody fucking owns that shit. He published it, and it's amazing that we still have it. Like he was publishing that stuff in magazines that no one read until after he was dead. So, just back off. That's like my whole point of view. I'm gonna lose my fucking mind if somebody tries to say they own Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah. That's, what are they that's, are you gonna sue id Software? Like, are you gonna like? Are you kidding me? Like everything that's going on in the quake and doom universe, like all the Lovecraft shit that's been in all these video games all the time. And they're going to come at you. No, that's not going to happen. Or if it does, yeah, I'm going to yeah. fist fight them. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, there's so much Lovecraft influence in so many different things these days. Mm-hmm. It really has blossomed. So it's going to be, it's too, it's too far gone to be um, reversed now. And, and let's say if someone did own the copyright, you can do the reverse of what I said before. You can show in the courts that they haven't defended their copyright. So they can't sue you because there's so many other people using it as well. Yeah. So they can't just pick out one out of a billion and sue them because you haven't defended your copyright. Even if, it, even if someone had some sort of magical way of copying Lovecraft, which they don't. Well, here's a great example of you're wearing your very beautiful old school Undertaker shirt. So oh yeah, when, when WWE launched their... Uh, network like the wwe network app it's like the streaming service for all of their content right they went on a crusade of taking all of the wwe related stuff off of youtube and not just wwe but everything vince mcmahon owns which is basically all of wrestling (laughs) throughout all of time not all of it but like the vast majority of it so when they did that like it can you imagine the the leverage you'd have to have to be able to do that, like go to YouTube and be like, we're taking down all the years of content or we're, you know, going to claim it in some way. And it resulted in like, ultimately, obviously they won. They they drove a lot of shit to their network and they're doing pretty well uh, until COVID. Now they kind of look like shit, to be honest with you, AEW all the way. But yeah, like why, why would you do that much work? I don't understand it. Like you're hurting yourself. You're shooting yourself in the foot to try to like, just show everyone that you own something. It's like, it's okay. It's not like the other people were making a shitload of money off of maybe, maybe I I wonder how much like ad revenue, if you could even put an ad on that at the time you're making off like the 10 best moves of Dolph Ziggler or whatever. Yeah. I mean, since the inception of YouTube, people have always been putting wrestling videos on there. It's a free advertisement for wrestling, which is another, like, even though it's bigger than, you know, our little thing we're doing here, it's another niche community. And what you want is people talking about it. Yeah, yeah, and um, and any kind of exposure helps. 
Yeah, I remember that uh, people, the, one of the earliest things on YouTube, people would put their wrestler entrance themes mm-hmm. on there. Yeah, and people just would jam out to that. And, but then that's a double strike now from the music industry and the WWE. Yep. So it's a, yeah, he's getting trouble. most of that stuff is uh, Jim Johnston. He's a, which he's a very talented composer. Obviously he's made some of the worst and best songs ever made. <laughs> you have everything from Ray Mysterio's dog shit <laughs> entrance music or like, you know, the gobbledygooker and shit like that. And then you have that all the way up to like the, you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin's entrance music, Brock Lesnar's entrance music, like it just yeah. really cool, like rock stuff. That's what's cool about wrestling entrance music is that it can it can be objectively dog shit, but if it works, it works. Shawn Michaels' entrance music, where he's singing like "I'm just a six. Oh yeah, I was like, <laughs> yeah. Well, so when I started a lot of the music stuff, I first was into MIDI, but then once I went into more uh digital audio workstations i started making more uh higher quality it was still bad but it was good enough for wrestling so my friends and i we used to backyard wrestle yeah me too and, yeah yeah it was it was the thing back in the day and sometimes we'd use the bad tracks i would put together and it was a blast yeah it was a blast remind me after this i'll send you i have a like a highlight video that my friend's dad made of us trampoline wrestling in a, in a trailer park in Alabama somewhere. Yeah. I got, um, videos on YouTube of some of my backyard wrestling and I don't even have, uh, I don't even remember the password to those accounts anymore. (laughs) So there's there, I can't delete them. They just have to stay there. And every now and then I just search them back up and just look at them and just have a good time. Yeah remembering the the old days oh you got it like it's like me but i have like this long like blonde mohawk that's like combed over and i was skinny as fuck at the time i got a little wrestling like the wwe replica belt we were using as a title we were were like crazy though we were not like i was taking it really seriously because i did plan to like go into that career field so i was like having like death matches and shit with my friends i was breaking guitar hero controllers on people's heads we had shovels. We had trash cans. We were doing dangerous shit, man. There was blood. Yeah, well, we used to say that uh, ladder matches hurt. Yeah. And uh, the worst ladder actually was not the aluminum one. It was the wood ladder mm. because that it just didn't have any give There's to no, it. like, re- reverberation to that smack. Yeah. And Yeah, and well, and people ask, like, why would you do backyard wrestling? And when you're, like, an angsty teen boy you have a lot of energy to get out and just going out there throwing around a 200 pound guy you you just think it is uh it's an adrenaline rush and it really gets a lot of the anxiety you have throughout the day just just out of your body for me because it's so you know hard to explain to people but like because most people are wrestling is fake and i get that i got i got you okay but it's theater like it's these are jockey dudes that are trying to circumvent their need to you know be like in the glee club essentially like i i want to be like this character i want i want there it's it's basically just theater that's all it really comes down to but with the added athletic part of it and there's a lot of pain involved it really it really irritates me people act like like oh they're not even really getting hurt i'm like you are fucking nuts like it is so hard to not die but the beautiful thing about wrestling, like the most beautiful thing about it is the fact that you're in there with this guy and you guys are basically killing each other 
and you have to trust that person 150%. Like you, yeah. you look into that guy's eyes, you lock up and they're like, oh, they put their angry face on. Like, I'm going to fucking eat your brains out. What they're really saying is like, how are you doing, man? Is your wife okay? Like, <laughs> and if you're going to do a stunt, if you're going to do a fucking pile driver off the top of a ladder through a table, you better trust that guy. Cause yeah. Yeah. Cause you don't want him to drop you on your neck. Yeah. Cause if his legs are not right with that pile driver, yeah. You can get uh, your spine compressed, and it's not going to end if well. If you if you give a guy an aluminum baseball bat wrapped in barbed wire, and he's going to hit you with it, you better hope he knows how to hit you with it. That's what ended my wrestling career was I got hit in the head with a steel chair uh, by a guy who I think he might have been on drugs or something, but he, he oh, hit man. me with the rim of the chair and not the uh, pad of the chair, and it split me open. And I, I mean, one of the worst injuries I've ever had in my life, and that really made me kind of wake up and say you know what? I'm not really making any money at this. I better find something that's going to feed my family. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I have some buddies who now are on the indie scene <laughs> and they're doing all right. They're doing all right on the indie scene. But uh, yeah, when I was looking at it, I was looking at just the career prospects of being a pro wrestler and it's rough because you don't always, you can't, it's not always based on your merit. Yeah. You have to be noticed by someone and they have to like you. You can't just become a super success just by skill alone. It's, it requires, like, if you really want to make a lot of money, it requires like someone like Vince McMahon or Triple H to notice you and want you in. Yeah, it's about networking and for and, sure. Yeah, and it's, it's only a handful of people, you know. And while in our careers, you know, if you hate your boss, you can find another job. It's, it's something very similar. In wrestling, you don't have many options anymore. And hopefully that changes things like AEW. That's that's the beautiful thing about what AEW is kind of doing right now. Because for when I was in the in the biz, it was, and when I say that, I'm sure somebody out there is going to be like, "You, who the fuck are you?" Like I, I was nobody. I, I'll say that right now. But the the best case scenario was you go work for the Fed, you go work for WWE, and the the absolute best case scenario is you basically go to not do your art. Like you work your entire life doing this art form to get to a place that will directly circumvent your creative process. Yeah, everything's scripted for you already. And and now with AEW, that is definitely changing. Like there's people like uh, Brody Lee left WWE. It probably took a pay cut as far as I understand it. Not because, you know, he wasn't making money. It's like, I hate what we're doing here. Like I've worked for years, like wrestling in backyards and fucking, you know, doing death matches in cornfields and high school gymnasiums and shit to just get here and have them essentially not let me do my craft and give me these crappy, you know, like segments and characters that I don't want to play. So with AEW, now there's another option with TNA for a bit. There was, but TNA was just WCW all over again. On a, with a, yeah. I was surprised how long TNA lasted. Yeah. Every time I watched TNA, I was like, it's, it has to be done by next month. It has <laughs> to be done by next. And then I, and st- it's still around. Yeah. It's still around. They, they find some way to keep on going. Impact. Yeah. It's not TNA anymore because I guess yeah. the, the oil Lords are out of the business now, but it, impact you, it, they stream on, Twitch like 24 7 365 and there's some good people over there I mean there's good people everywhere it also comes down to writing and promotion which with AEW you have like Cody Rhodes I guess he's just Cody now because Vince owns the name Rhodes oh yeah but he he's doing a lot of the writing over there and they have a lot a good crew of people Arn Anderson and all these guys that are 100% behind like the wrestlers themselves like be a wrestler do what wrestlers do but we came here to talk about doing 
Yeah, yeah. That's okay, man. No, it's, not our backyard wrestling history. That's okay. That's that's what the podcast is about. We can go into little things, and Brand Flakes will provide you with a timestamp on YouTube that you can just skip right past it. Back to you. I kind of want to get, get a yeah. little more background on you because you're an interesting cat. You're not just uh, the man behind the music. You're also a super genius uh, mad scientist over there, too. Um, where were you? I just get... I just get noticed under the radar. They haven't figured out who I am yet to fire me. Where are you from originally? So I was born in California, and that explains some of my accent. Mm -hmm. Then I grew up in Michigan for a while. Then I moved to Arizona, and that's when I started my college career. It was in Arizona, and uh, specifically University of Arizona. Right here in beautiful Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I remember I I loved the weather there. These people would say it's too hot, but I didn't mind that. I yeah. didn't mind that. It was it was a nice experience. It's and a, uh, it's a beautiful place. Like that's that's one thing. Yeah. It's like it's magical. You go outside and you're like surrounded on all sides by mountains, and just yes, yeah. And you get uh, sometimes hear the coyotes at night, and you get to see the saguaro cacti and the javelinas. Yeah, and sometimes it's kind of like, like when you, uh, it's like a, like almost like a dreamscape in a way. It has like a supernatural feel, especially when, right at when it, right at sunset, right at night. Yep. You know, it's, it's just a very surreal place, and everyone should go and visit there sometime. Yeah, even if it's even if it's going to see the Grand Canyon, uh, stop by the small town Williams. It's a fantastic place, and just hang out, look in the desert, yeah. watch the sunset. Even like Flagstaff, it's a, not desert at all. It's a very forest, but it's just a, all of the air, the whole western half of the United States is, beats the shit out of everywhere but the Appalachian Mountains, as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, yeah, and I, I was there to study physics at the University of Arizona, mm-hmm. and then um, then eventually I went to Indiana and got my PhD, and my specialty is in biophysics, and I specifically uh, study the membranes, the barriers that surround cells, how they respond and react to their environment. And I study them using physical methods to figure out their structure. My, uh, the technique I'm most familiar with is called nuclear magnetic resonance. And a lot of people might have heard it in its other form in terms of magnetic resonance imaging. But instead of imaging people, I look at the structure of small molecules. So it gets the NMR term as, as opposed to the MRI term. Right. Yeah, and I... And uh, so now I'm in Tennessee. I work at the Oak Ridge National Lab. And I've actually been recruited to study COVID-19. Nice. So yeah, so with, that's interesting. Go ahead, please. Yeah. So with, uh, and specifically uh, with COVID, so COVID has two parts that uh, interact with the membrane. One called the spike protein, which allows the virus to attach to the cell surface. And then once it's inside, there's one, another one called the E protein, which is a techno, it's a, technically an ion channel. What it does is it changes the chemical composition inside the cell so it can construct itself easier. Mm-hmm. So we're studying how to disrupt either the S protein or the E protein. Okay. Yeah. I understood so all that. That's what I'm doing. That's, that's what I'm doing. So Feel uh, free to ask any detailed questions. I, I don't want the show to become like a political fucking argument about COVID or whatever. Because like, people will shit on us if we say anything either way. If you, we start saying one thing, yeah. they're going to be like, you're wrong. And if we say the other thing, they're going to be wrong. But 
it is awesome to know that someone from our community is actively working on it. Yeah. Yeah. And I can understand that it's gotten pretty extreme yeah. with the talk uh, on both ends. I can say yeah. as a sign, as a scientist viewing from the outside is there's uh there's it started off with a lot of unknowns and a lot of people were giving suggestions to those unknowns as certainties and that caused a lot of trouble yeah i just don't like times when people are scared when people fear you know something they tend to lean towards safety over for their freedom and it's just unfortunate that when you you give away your freedom you don't get it back later so it's a scale. Like I think it's it just upsets both sides of the spectrum because obviously you need both. You need to be feel safe, and you need to feel like you can still live your life. And we're just in a weird situation, man. Yeah. But yeah. I'm comfortable knowing that someone who makes the most fucked up music <laughs> anyone could ever make is over here working on that. <laughs> yeah, and um, the my career in science and, and physics gave me the programming chops to approach music in a weird way. Hmm. That's that's something we'll get into a bit too because I want to talk about your your special keyboard. But when do you think that your biophysics background it kind of informs because the, the music is obviously dark and ambient, but like even your album artwork is very uh, Giger. And does the does the biophysics kind of inform that body horror sound and look? For you, or yeah, is it just you've always yeah? Well, in? I always imagine of the future. So when I approach biology as a scientist, it becomes very mechanical in the way. So right. like Geiger had a very uh, biomechanical type style, and so I always imagine a future where biology is not treated as separate from machine; it's one. And so yeah. when I come up with these art styles, I think of of body and machine as one, but also like digital consciousness in a way and mm-hmm. it's and it's not in the utopian like oh i'm thinking like a uh like an omniscient being i'm thinking of like in the future where shit hits the fan and we just have to make something sufficient so this is just a, a mechanical organism made to survive not to be fancy right. not to be pretty but just to be uh aggressive and and i guess yeah. abrasive as with all things, because we fail to sort of evangelize science and how things will go, you know, as time goes on, like people tend to think about things in terms of like, how does this affect me now? And then they don't really think about the future. So yeah, we're not going to, we're probably not going to end up with like these amazing, like system shock esque transhumanist sort of like super beings. I'm thinking it's going to become an engineering problem as it always does where it's like, oh, okay, well we're in a really bad situation. So we got to whip up a quick fix. And as you said, to survive, it will be like a, you're going to need this implant to breathe or something, you know, something along those lines, not, oh, we've already, you know, gotten way past the problem and everybody's going to live for a million years. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's always, the hardest challenge to predict the future, but you can always imagine a future that there's always going to be some sort of problems to solve because no matter how you push the knowledge boundary, there's still that boundary of the unknown mm-hmm. that you're still trying to push against. And in the end, there are certain biological, certain just forces in general where you have to survive. And that kind of governs that, it's not always advantageous to be a perfect being. 
because yeah. if you're uh, if you're not sloppy in some ways, it's hard to actually combat against changes in your environment. So you have to have some uh, some excess DNA that goes yeah. unused, but you have it there for a certain situation, and that's how all these viruses uh, uh, can survive so long because they have a, some this junk DNA hanging around. And they can randomly insert it in, and we think it's like mutating, but no, it's just going through old forms of its DNA to keep on uh, going through its environment in different forms. Yeah, it's a kind of a fundamental flaw that people seem to not understand. Is like they think we're evolving towards this one particular perfect being, as you said, and that is not advantageous. Like Hitler would have fucked himself over royally, eventually, because you need diversity. It, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, some people have to die so that we know that that trait isn't going to, you know, be good for us in the future. So you have to have like more than one way of living that way when when the comet hits, right? Or when the nukes go off. The nukes are going to go off in cities and the people who are adapted to living in the wilderness are going to be the ones who survive the nuclear holocaust. So that will be an advantageous trait. And we could get all the way down to like, you know, the genetic level with that, but it's just really a uh, really interesting kind of concept. I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's and the thing is because of how uh, having a little bit of diversity uh, helps, it makes it really hard to predict the future because you have mm-hmm. all these options to start with, and they just fan out. And that's why having uh, these uh sci-fi too far in the future it can be once you actually get there it's like hey wait a sec it doesn't look like this anymore especially now you know and uh and quite honestly it's it's hard for scientists to even be any better at predicting the future either well as time goes on eventually we will all you know evolve closer and closer towards perfect elvisness (laughs) and we'll shed this mortal coil and we will transcend into graceland but until then we got to deal with this survival problem. Yeah, yeah, and I know there's been a lot of talk about like downloading the brain into a computer, but <laughs> you know, you have to imagine you, there's the brain and body. There's all kinds of connections between the neuro, the neurons through your gut, through your spinal cord, and there, there's always hormones going back and forth. And once you digitize those neurons, you're really reducing the what we call in physics the degrees of freedom. Of right. how the neurochemicals pass through your brain, and there's you, you're going to change, and it's going to be interesting to find out what that change will be. All the all the listeners that are getting stoned and laying down on the couch to listen to this are going to be like, "What the fuck have I just got myself into?" <laughs> <laughs> but you're right; you're 100. percent As far as I can tell, I don't know shit. I know the weather. I unfortunately know meteorologists who like straight up don't believe in climate change, and I'm like, "What in the fuck are you doing in this career field?" Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're, it's predicting long-term climate is slightly different than daily climate, you know? Of course. Yeah. But it's just a a matter of, I think it's all, it really all comes down to people's political views. 99% of the time it's, it's never empirical when, when you have that argument because it's obviously super nuanced subject. Like I'm not saying that we're the sole cause I'm just saying like the evidence is pretty clear, but then you have to deal with models and you know everything about models. I'm sure whether models are like some of the most powerful computers that exist and they're still not even remotely close to perfect. Otherwise I wouldn't have a job because if the model could just predict it perfectly, then 
we wouldn't need humans to do it, but you have to have a human there to yeah. compare the model to what's happening in real time and then make adjustments and make decisions because a model can't really make decisions. It can only make predictions. Yeah. And what, uh, what lot of scientists, scientists end up doing is they fork the model. So you have your daily weather model, which is often governed by these supercomputers and, uh, mm-hmm. and using, uh, I know one person actually used to use voxels, but that's not the main one. I forgot what the main one is. But then you also have, but then you have the climate, which ends up being often a separate model mm-hmm. over longer time spans of how like the earth wobbles and tilts more so than, uh, than the local uh, ocean currents. Right. Right. You have like a, a good example is that you have the North American model. It's, excellent for north america but you can't use it in you know a different place because it takes into account some of the you know just the climate it observes in north america or um it's excellent for predicting like supercell tornado producing storms in oklahoma but as soon as you introduce the rocky mountains to the situation it is dog shit like it can't handle that because it's just not taking that into account and there's it's really hard to program it like how do you take that into account so we have algorithms that Humans have to like, all right, we got to crunch the numbers here and figure out what the likelihood of this is. There's also the the element of like, if you, you have a lot of ifs, this happens, then, you know, the storm will hit here. And then you have to have a human there to say like, I'm looking at the radar and I know the model said this could happen, but the storm is a hundred miles to the north. So it's not possible for that to happen. So, uh, all right. <laughs> Eventually we'll get back to the deep rabbit, rabbit hole. It's a deep rabbit hole. Eventually, your music is, uh, to me anyway, fucking awesome, dude. I obviously, I don't think either of us predicted that I would just be like throwing it all over the podcast, but I loved it as soon as I heard you on QuakeCast. I was like, that's my jam. That is the theme of what I'm doing here is the, this ethereal, Lovecraftian, dark universe. And it's such an amazing back setting to everything. Uh, one of the comparisons I think Dump Truck said was that as you said, it's mechanical. So you have like this ability, especially in Quake, it lends itself to that perfect, obviously, of making the environment feel alive. And that is your work. So let, let's get into your musical influences, if you can. Yeah, yeah. So I first started, as I mentioned before, I first started making music with MIDI's. It was because I would uh, listen, when, once I installed Duke Nukem and Doom on my computer, I would go through mm-hmm. the music. And I was like, oh, look at all these MIDI's. And I was like, oh, I can lo- actually look at their notes. And I would had an old GeoCities page I would put MIDI's on. And then eventually I worked to a digital audio workstation where I made uh, v- various tracks. I don't think any of them are all that great, but uh, mm-hmm. like backyard wrestling and whatnot. Then I ended up getting out of music for a little while. And I just remember like one of some of the earlier soundtracks I would look for. Like when, we, when everyone got the internet back in the 90s, you'd it wasn't Napster back then, but it was something like it. And I remember I was looking mm-hmm. for their doom. And when you look on these online for music at that time, you wouldn't get midis. You'd get the MP3s. And a lot of it was like Aubrey Hodges's music. And, yeah. that, and I would find the doom PlayStation music. I was like, Oh man, that reminds me of doom 64. I didn't know that Aubrey Hodges did both at the time. And then I would play some doom 64 and that soundtrack would really stick in my head. And for those who don't are not familiar with Doom 64, it has, or the Doom PlayStation music, it has a, I think technically it is ambient, 
but has these somewhat abrasive sounds that come in and out and these weird soundscapes. And that always stuck in my head. And it was just once I started programming and once I started getting into physics more, I started lo- learning about signal processing, how to process signals coming in. And out then I was doing radio frequency signals from nuclear magnetic resonance. And the this Aubrey Hodge's soundtrack and whatnot just stuck in my head. Yeah. And I moved to a new house and I was listening to to his soundtrack a lot because I would have trouble sleeping at night. I don't know, just mm-hmm. sit there listening to it. And eventually I went through it so many times that I was predicting the songs. And once you start predicting ambient songs, then that's, that's a little bit too much. You, it's too far. And then I was thinking, oh, is there a way I could generate something similar? And I wasn't yeah. sure of his exact methods then. Uh, I'm a little bit more familiar with them now, but then I started to decide to do my own way of trying to approach it. And what I was first going to actually do something in MIDI where I'd have sounds in MIDI, but then I realized that was too limiting for me unless I used custom sounds. So I decided that I would program my own synthesizer which got me down a rabbit hole. And actually, when I was programming that synthesizer, I was listening to Lovecraft's Dunwich Horror. So, oh, yeah. I literally just listened to that like recently, man. Yeah, so there's certain sounds that my synthesizer produces that just take me back. Because mm-hmm. I was So I was sitting there programming, and I realized I could um, pretty much define a waveform with a series of points. And then I could repeat that, and then I'll have a tone. And that was like a very old-school retro way of doing it. But then I realized I could evolve that tone over time. And what I was trying to do was I realized that natural sounds, it's very rare for a sound to sound exactly the same twice. So when a bird is chirping and it chirps again, it's in a slightly different state. It's its larynx is slightly drier. Yeah. So it's going to be some alteration. So I was like, oh, if I want to do like ambient sounds, I need to take my inspiration from the environment. And each time I play a sound, I should have it slightly different each time. So I have all these wave- waveform points evolving. And then I also have um, effects that I put onto it. Like, um, like I have a distortion that I put on there and mm-hmm. I have a reverb and actually the reverb can also act like a speaker cabinet where it can cut out certain frequencies. So it's kind of like going through like a pipe or something like that. And I can have that evolve. And the way I do it, it's a technique called convolution. And I change how it convolutes over time. And eventually, so I have all these parameters that I'm setting up and I want them all evolving. And I realized that's too much for me to just evolve on my own. So I have my computer set up like a series of like a matrix of noise vectors, just gradually evolving all these sounds over time. So if you listen to some of my tracks, I have these deep notes and they kind of fade in, they fade out and they change slightly over time. And that's what, that's what's being generated right there is all these deep sounds that are evolving. Yeah. 
And then I also have decided like, okay, if I want to make ambient music, I need to emulate various aspects of nature. And like, if you startle a flock of birds or flock of animals, one will make a noise and then the rest will make a noise. So a lot of times if you hear me introduce a sound in my music, I'll have it echo back a few times. So that ding, 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 kind of just emulating what I hear in the environment. And that's just trying to make things more organic. So if you're listening to it, you, you know it's synthesizer stuff, but it doesn't seem wrong in a way that this is total noise and I hate it. And even though some people might listen to it and might get might think that, might get that kind of impression because they're not used to that kind of music. But right. it's trying to take the chaos my that my synthesizer takes with all these noise vectors and get it into like a palatable form. For me, to describe your music very simply, it sounds like nature, like it it mimics the patterns that we see in nature um and the chaos that we see in nature but if the world were really fucked up that's that's where it really just it's the best yeah. way i know how to put it like it, and if the world were nuked to shit or completely desolated or whatever or you know turned into a biomechanical you know giger's future this is what it would sound like and i think you pretty much nailed it down yeah yeah and it ended up being like a a style inspired by Aubrey Hodges, but it's kind of end up being like a unique, like a style that's slightly different. It became my own. And I, I kind of feel it fits between doom 64 and quake one. Yeah. And that's when I approached the quake community. Like, cause I actually, I only, I started making this music just for myself because I wanted yeah. to have something to listen to. Like, when I'm trying to relax in bed or when I'm working in the lab, you know, it's, it's kind of weird to have such kind of music, but that's the kind of music that gets my mind going. And I approached the Quake community about it, and to my surprise, they really took on to it. I think, and it was JCR that you had on the podcast before that used my the first track, and then he had it in one of his maps. And then was it, it the uh, was it the map that's like the giant uh, living house? Yes. Yeah, that is such a great map, and it's so perfect for your music too. Yes, and I pretty much said, "Hey, here, feel free to take any track you'd like," and he picked one, and and it, it worked. I'm I'm happy it worked. I, I was I wasn't sure at first, but it worked. And I ended up working on uh, the Quake Finish Mappers Jam or Smedge, mm-hmm. or if you see it, the official title of it is Realm of the Lost. Yep. Because they heard down the line that uh, my ancestors from both sides of my family are finished. So they're like, okay, we can let him in on this. Oh, so, that's fucked up. <laughs> well, I mean, so all the, ma- all the people on there are finished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's cool. So they're like, oh, well, he has enough finishedness in him. So we can let him, we, he can be on board and we, and we would like to use his music. Mm-hmm. So then it, uh, so then the, Realm of the Lost was completely original tracks to that that Quake map set, and all it's all my tracks, and they're all original to that. And some of those will never see a release outside of that Quake map set. And um, so I'm usually just hanging around the Discord, translating their Finnish via via Google Translate, and making really bad jokes. And they for mm-hmm. some reason they 
they don't kick me out. They just let me make horrible humor all the time in English on their finished mapping Discord. I'm a huge fan of Smile Scythe's maps uh, in both that and Jump Jam. And just in general, he's a really cool guy. But yeah, like the the shit that, that has been turned out of the Quake community is absolutely crazy. And what, what really kind of blows my mind about it is that most of these guys are really just hobbyists. Like they, they, they strictly want this to be like JCR is a perfect example. Like I, I just want to be a hobby. Like I'm like, dude, you could be making amazing video games. You could easily be a, you know, a level designer in a game as good as you are at this. And a lot of those guys could be, but they don't seem interested. They just want to do the quake thing, which is awesome. That's so good for the, you know, just keeping the community alive. And eventually some people will rise up from that. Yeah. Well, some of them are in the, uh, in the gaming design world and they're making yeah. games. And I know a few of them that are contracted right now to make various games for various companies. And mm-hmm. I can't say who, because they're on under NDAs, but if you're playing these yeah. games, yeah. just you're getting some of these professional map designers for free. Yeah. It's so cool. You know, and you don't know. I mean, I, sometimes I hint to people like I'll, I'll watch a Twitch channel of someone playing, like one of the Quake map jams, and I'll hint around saying, oh, look, this guy will be a big name in the future. This guy is a big name, but I can't tell you who he is and stuff like that. So it's it's an amazing community. It is. It's fantastic. Between that and the Doom community and like everything, like there's amazing programmers all over the gaming world, but specifically the Quake and Doom level <laughs> designing communities have just taken me on a wild trip that I never thought I would go down just in their generosity and their creative expression. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. And like, I think a lot of it is uh, a lot of us old school FPS fans are now adults. We have our careers and some of us are have a decent living. So we just want to give back to the game that help us get through some rough times. You know, for me, it was, I played a lot of Quake 64 and a lot of Doom 64. So any t- chance I get to help out the Doom or Quake communities, if I have time, I'll jump in and say, take it free. You don't need to give me anything. And if you give me something, I'm just going to refund it back into indie devs or friends. Would Would you be interested if someone were like really actually try to contract you to do the soundtrack to a game? Would you be open to that? I don't know. Because it's a, it's a lot of work, right? Yeah, yeah. I think if they if they give a good enough pitch, if I if I see the game as violent and grotesque enough, I'm like, okay, you're talking my speed now. Then maybe, yeah. I mean, I'm the way I work now is I make something because I like it, and then everyone else mm-hmm. can use it. That's kind of the way I work now because I have a pretty decent career right now in science, and so yeah while things are good for me, because it's not good for everyone, and especially right now, right? I'm in a mood to just just give things for free and help out where I can. can. Like, if let's say if one of my friends is making a game, I'm like, yeah, just use my music. And if you if your game makes any money, just give me some trump change, you know? Just take it. I don't, I don't need to be paid up front. Just give me some trump change. And if... If I end up, because the future is always unpredictable, if I end up getting in a rough spot, you know, maybe I'll ask for help. But right now, I'm doing good. Just take my stuff. It's there for free. Just grab it. 
I want to get you in contact with this uh, this young man from Phoenix, Arizona, who's working on. Have you seen uh, Scythe Two, the the Doom Total Conversion? Yeah, I see. I see. I think I've seen a little bit of that. Yeah, it's really good. I've played it. It's. I mean, he's an amazing kid. I, I got to stop calling him a kid. He's a man now. He's he's almost twenty years old, but his game is really impressive. Um, and he's got a. I think he's got a bright little career ahead of him in terms of just being an indie dev and maybe picking up some other stuff along the way. But he was talking to me about like, you know, I need music for this particular game because, you know, I had to, you know, I ran out of money and then I had to kind of use non-copyrighted music that maybe doesn't fit it perfectly. And he's like, but I want like this dark ambient sound because it's a very Lovecraft inspired game and it's got body horror. It's literally right up your alley. And he's just saying this and I started smiling. I was like, I know a guy. I just take it. I know a guy. Take it. And I'll I'll let him know. Sell it. And if you end up any any change left over, I'll take it and I'll re-spend it back into the community. God, he's like these levels where you're walking through the inside. There's one called the womb in one of his uh one of the two sides games. I forget which one, but you're literally like walking through like stomach vial, and then you have to like the the exit door is like a butthole, <laughs> and then you eventually come out of the person's mouth and like kind of get vomited into like this ethereal blackness and then you come out in a different world like this kid is he's one of us he's part of our tribe yeah it's kind of like imagining the universe as a living being in itself and you're just going through its bowels and fighting up yeah that yeah yeah that's i mean that kind of stuff i'm always surprised when i hear i mean to me you're young and then to him then 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 he's young to you and Mm -hmm. i remember like when I was your age, the retro thing, I mean, I guess an N64 is starting to get retro, but the true retro thing was Atari. And none of us. By the way, his name's Scumhead. I think I went that whole time without saying his name. I'm sorry. Scumhead. Scumhead, it's yours. Just take it. And if you need something custom, just send me a message and I'll see if I can wrangle some time and getting things together. Yeah. And so back to the. Well, I was saying, Sorry. I, when I was about your age, the retro, the retro stuff was like the Atari and stuff like that. And none of us were really interested in going back and playing Atari. So it often surprises me when I hear uh, young people find these classic FPS games and these classic games and just fall in love with them. Because for a while there, like when uh, Doom 64 was about to be, gets remastered, I wasn't sure how people would react to it initially. Because I know I got some nostalgia for it, so it's I'm already rating it higher than I probably than what the average person would anyway. But it was in a it was in a different time where level design aesthetics were different. And then to my surprise, it's nine out of ten on Steam, and I'm like, wow, people love it. The Night Dive port of Doom sixty four is my favorite Doom game. Period. That's not a mod. Like that's not a, a total conversion or a completely new map set like just as the uh, from the original you know the doom titles it is my favorite one period i've talked to other people about it when doom 64 so it has this weird atmospheric soundtrack but it has this old classic fps action of mm-hmm. chewing down sprite enemies and it has this advancement of, of gradient sector lighting where if you look up in the walls the the darkness or the color would fade to a different color or different darkness. So it has a lot of these unique features that Doom 64 couldn't have come out at any different time. Uh, 
yeah. talking that if Doom 64 came out later in the N64 lifespan, all the enemies would be 3D, the levels would be simpler, and the frame rate would be like 15 frames per second. Yeah. And yeah, and so it just had to come out at the beginning of the N64, if at all, right? Because even back then, a lot of the Western American game reviewers weren't they weren't that excited to see another Doom Engine game. Mm-hmm. Even though all all of us, the, this is a lot of us was the first time playing Doom, and so we loved it because this was our first Doom Engine game. And so another Doom Engine game coming out later on the N64 lifespan was not going to happen. So it just hit that window. It got in at the right time, and it's such a, a unique and different take on Doom. But it also keeps a lot of the core gameplay aspects that a lot of old-school Doom fans like. So it's this weird merger, and it's been surprisingly received well because like Doom Eternal fans are not always necessarily old-school Doom fans. And so they give it a try, and they're shooting through enemies. They approach their first puzzle, and I'm like, oh, no, they're going to hate it now. They're not going to – this is going to confuse them. And, yes, it does confuse them. But in a way, I think it's kind of liberating because they're free to move in the level. They're not being funneled. And they're free to think about solving this situation. It's not just testing their skills. It's testing the way they think. And I think it's a, it's a little bit of a fresh approach for a lot of these people. And it's just amazing to see all these young people enjoying it. It's, it, it came out about at the perfect time, as you said, because it keeps that core gameplay you know, that you, everybody enjoys about Doom 1 and 2. But it, it, it has so much more atmosphere and like, is just right on that perfect precipice where like the graphics are suitable to tell the story that you couldn't really get with the first two doom releases. It just wasn't possible at the time. And as you said, like the, the people who are playing doom eternal and then they get that free order package and then they, Oh fuck it. I'll try it. You know, a lot of them won't like it. Initially they're going to be totally jarred by just not having mouse look. And that's sorry. Part of it. But if they can get past that, the few who do, like that's new people, new members of the you know Doom community that we all know and love. So I'm for whatever gets them here. Yeah, and to be honest, when I would start playing, the first Doom Doom Source port I played was the Doomsday Engine, and that was later used to do an early Doom 64 port. And that I used to play with mouse look, but eventually over time, <laughs> it's kind of weird. I don't know why I'm going in this. I end up going in this direction, but over time, I disable mouse look. I reduce my resolution to half. I take out all the filtering. I don't even want mip mapping in there. I take that out. So I have this crunchly, pixely mess. And I even I even try sometimes to reduce the color output. So instead of having 256 co- colors per shade, I reduce it down to 128 or 64 just to crunch up how mm-hmm. the colors go on and i get this very crunchy look so i understand like when you start out you want maximum graphics you want all in the bells and whistles but the older i get either my brain is degrading and i want more degraded games or my aesthetic is like oh no i want this to be more crunchy i want to see these hard pixels i want i don't really care about the mouse look because sometimes with that mouse look the sprites look funky anyway and it takes me out when i see a funky sprite looking just all flat so I'm like, no, I don't want yeah. to look, look anymore. And I disable that, you know. And it's just getting it's an, a uh, very crunchy, very gritty, very, like my album covers. I will 
degrade a lot of the colors. Like, or like if you go to my YouTube channel and I go on the videos, I will purposely degrade and add noise to it just to, it gives you like a raw feeling to it, you know, that it's not overly polished. It doesn't, it doesn't, like when you see something that's so and so polished, it reaches that, that uncanny valley where it looks too be- beautiful that almost becomes disgusting, like drinking a bottle of corn syrup, you know? So I'm like, no, I want to yeah. make it dirty. I want to make it gritty. And then that kind of gives like an organic and almost like 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 a real feeling of something foreboding. I don't think you're capable of doing anything half-assed. You, you go all the way in on everything that you get into. Well, it's just, I obsess over certain things. And if my wife was on, she's like, yeah, uh, I pick a few things I obsess over. And then if something else comes, I'm like, I don't have time for this. I, I don't have that many years to live. I don't care. I'm not going to pay attention to that. I'm just going to focus on this. And uh, yeah. We're very much the same in that regard. People like they'll come to me like, oh, why don't you do this or that? I'm like, I do not have any extra bandwidth for that. I'm totally 100% in on what I'm doing over here. And it's, and if I, it can be cha- uh, challenging to be like a, a good friend sometimes because I'm just like, no, I've, I'm so obsessed with what I'm doing. Yeah. I can't like take on a new thing. Yeah, like someone buys me a Steam game and I'm like, it might have been on my wish list, yeah. right? But still, it's like, I got, I can't, I don't have time to play this until probably the next year. Yeah. You know, but, and, and the thing is, like, I realized that the way I've grown up is differently. I've had a different kind of cultural experience. And that means that I like certain things, but it doesn't mean other things are bad, which is, I find it rough for like, uh, game reviewers to score a game to give like oh is this a nine out of ten seven out of ten and like who's it an eight out of ten to is it just you is it for a specific audience is it for everybody you know so uh when i look at games now i don't judge them as harshly as i did when i was a teenager i'm like yeah i could see this game being perfect for this type of person so i'd recommend that game for that person I'm no longer going to go on a Steam page and like, oh, I wanted to have this in this game and they didn't give it to me, so this game sucks. Well, it kind of comes back to the predictive modeling thing. Like, yeah, you can put, you know, have a rubric for how you score a game and, you know, give it a, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, whatever out of 10 or however you want to do it. And it doesn't matter because it really comes down to, again, the taste of the person. So, like, is the fundamental basic stuff there, like, does it work? Will it run on my system? Like that, that's kind of like, everybody's going to be concerned about that. But once you're beyond that point, it really just becomes a matter of taste. So when I talk to Vince and, you know, anybody who does game reviews, I always say, I'm not interested in you telling me your score or whatever of the game. I want to know that I found, I look for people who clearly have similar tastes for me, or at least people who I know what they think well enough that I can predict what my reaction will be based on what their reaction is. So when I see someone like him say like, this game is really good and these are the reasons why I know that I trust his opinion to be consistent. Yeah. You see like a Vince Steele review, he'll go and he'll describe what's going on in the game. Some of the some things that might surprise you. So even, so you'll learn something more about what's going on in the game, if that will appeal to your taste. He's thinking right. about it. Like, what audience is this for? Who will this appeal to? Not merely like, oh, it's only about me and what I like. 
and he's also got a very unique way of expressing yeah well he, his opinions and things a like psychiatrist and yeah yeah so it it comes with some ongoing themes to keep you entertained as you go through this journey and that's what it is yeah you know, it's, it's a journey through art so we're talking about how games fit a nation and doom 64 to me fit into a particular niche that was unique to a lot of and 64 owners. So it was like a small group mm-hmm. of people who even realized it existed. And so obviously I can talk about Doom 64 forever. And yeah. So that, that inspired me to make a Doom 64 Discord server because uh, I could tell people I was talking about Doom 64 on everyone's Twitch channel, on everyone's server. And I was like, this needs to be localized. So with the help of uh, Captain Caleb and Wolf McBaird, I made a Doom 64 server where it's a uh, place where we just talk about Doom 64, not specific to any port, but we talk about any kind of port of Doom 64. So the remaster, mm-hmm. Doom 64 EX, you know, you talk about like having mouse look, you know, we talk about DZ Doom and Doom 64 Retribution, which have mouse look. And we, we even talk about Brutal Doom 64, you know, because Br- Brutal Doom 64 did bring the attention of Doom 64 to a different audience. And surprisingly, those people, the Brutal Doom people, like Doom 64 as well. So I was surprised about that as well. And so I have this Discord going, and we have all kinds of mappers on there. We have uh, Eric on there, who is uh, in the process of reverse engineering the Doom 64 ROM. So Mm -hmm. they made the remaster. They didn't have the source code, and they just had to reverse parts of it that they could. And Eric is finishing the process. So... I'm hoping one day that we'll have Doom 64 mods compatible with the N64 itself. So that'll be pretty sweet. And and I've been pleasantly surprised of how well the Discord has taken off so far. Because I, w- I was seeing that once the remaster came out, a lot of people were talking about it, but then it started to die down again. And mm-hmm. I was like, there's some good Doom 64 Discords in terms of specific ports. So Retribution has one. And mm-hmm. Kex, the Kex Engine has a Discord. Night Dive has a Discord. But there wasn't one specifically for the general just talk about Doom 64. Let's help collaborate and keep it going. And I was inspired particularly by the Quake mapping community because I've seen how Dump Truck had that server going. And it keeps the Quake community kind of running and going. Yeah, And so I, I don't know if my server will ever reach that kind of height, but if I can get one-tenth of what Dump Truck did, I'll be overjoyed. And right now I'm already impressed by how much has gone on there. Like We've had uh, people working on making MIDIs for Doom 64, so using Aubrey Hodge's sounds and making mm-hmm. new MIDIs. And like the port of choice for modding has been Doom 64 EX. And it's been around for about 10 years. And it was only until like a month ago, so ago that on the Discord through collaboration and a guy named Impoy kind of drove it forward that we figured out how to uh, import custom music into Doom 64 EX. So 10 years later, now we can put music in it. And uh, so that gives room for more artists. And then we also figured out uh, through like Volosaurus and then Dexia's really drove it forward that now on the remaster, we can make we can already figure out how to make maps for it, but now we can add custom textures to it now too. 
So if anyone wants to jump in and uh, make Doom 64 mods, I got your hookup. What's really cool about that is, so you're going to get to see everybody kind of discuss the whole thing. I'm, I'm kind of curious. What, how have the uh, lost levels been sort of received by the greater Doom 64 community? So most people have felt it was kind of like a natural progression from, uh, like if Doom modding was continuing for all these years, the way that the uh, like Doom if the Doom sixty four modding was continuing, like how the Doom modding was going, that's would be that kind of the levels that would would have been made. So um, where in general, like a lot of the Doom modding, there's a lot of splits into like very hard like slaughter maps, or you have these very uh, colorful um, explorative maps, mm-hmm. and. And so the Doom 64 kind of straddles that middle ground. And with, and so those lost levels were made by Kaiser, who's been in the community forever. And right. has been mapping for Doom 64 and Doom Project since then as well. And so they've been generally well-received. Um, now, the, I think they um, appeal, they're a little bit more appealing to old-school Doom map- maps because they don't have as much puzzles as the original the Doom 64 ones did. Right, but they do have that nonlinear kind of exploration where you find a key there, and hopefully you remember where that blue door is because it's likely there's going to be a lot of colored lighting right there for to remind you where to go. And so he kept that alive. And these maps tend to be a little bit harder and a little bit more detailed. So that's what you'd expect from a mapping community to have a little bit like one difficulty higher and a little bit more detail. Yeah. I noticed as I was playing through them that there are some little kind of tricks that I see him playing that would not have existed at the time that Doom 64 originally came out, which is nice. Like, it, because it's supposed to be like, I, I guess, per Bethesda, they wanted to bridge it into the modern, you know, Doom canon. And I thought it was done really well without in any way compromising, you know, what the game was. So, it's just really cool how he managed to do that. And then with the final boss fight that you get with, you know, the, the mother demon and it's, it's totally different than the original fight. Cause you know, back then it was very common. You just like you and that demon and you're just going to run around in circles, maybe a few others, but this one we have massive improvement. We've got like puzzles within that. You have the ability to, because you start off the lost levels with no weapons and then yeah. you have to re up your stock. So you, you just pick up the, Weapons as you move into the area, and then you have to find all the uh, what are they called demon yeah. keys or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yes, you find all of those within the level itself, and you can choose you can choose to just right, straight up go and engage in the fight, or you can play the game the way it's meant to be done. And I love that. I, I love having options. Yeah, yeah, having the freedom because like if people watch my YouTube and see how I play Doom sixty four, it's very unlike how Doom one and Doom two players do. Doom 1 and Doom players will run in, circle strafe, and blast and blast and blast. I will look around the corner, shoot back around the corner. I have a very hesitative approach where I kind of take my time in approaching battles. I like to use the geometry to my advantage, which is and get get the enemy stuck around the geometry so I can cheese them a little bit and funnel yeah. through, the, through the corridors. And that's one of the nice things about the open-endedness of a lot of these old-school games is that you have this 
freedom and approaching battles in different ways. You watch a uh, Decino's channel ever? Yes. Anybody who doesn't go to YouTube and look up Decino, D E C I N O. He is. I learned how to use the BFG properly from Decino. He is a master. Like the way that he plays the casino goes straight to the top difficulty and will walk into a map blind, you know, any map pack. And just hearing him so casually talk about it as he's doing it yeah, just is, yeah, blasting it's such a treat. And Sunlust is like, uh, wait a second. I wouldn't, I would start Sunlust and just die immediately, but he's in there just working his way through like it's a normal map. I was like, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. The way he'll like, he's so comfortable with like, he knows exactly how many shots it takes to kill an enemy and how their movement patterns are. So he'll just literally like walk through, he'll walk through a giant horde of enemies as if it's nothing. It's just, just graceful. It's like watching ballet or something like that. And he just dances around them. He'll lead them to where he wants them to be. He'll, eh, I'm not worried about that. I'm kind of worried about these revenants over here. So I'll give them a couple blasts. One, two, three. Okay, he's down. And I'll just slide back over here. Let's get them in fighting. Why not? It's just like watching uh, the most masterful thing ever being explained to you. Because it's one thing to be really good. It's another thing to be able to do live commentary of yourself playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not sound frustrated. I can't. I'm incapable. I suck at Doom. I'm terrible. But yeah, there, there's levels to it, and I've been slowly learning that mm-hmm. because I was. I recently was inspired by Decino, and I did his uh, fast monsters, watch me die, pistol starts, no mid level saves for Doom 64. I didn't wonder 100 kills like he did, but for me it was a challenge just to get through it. And uh, you set up certain strategies like. If you remember where those Lost Souls and Pain Elementals are, get that chain gun out. Don't even bother with that double shotgun because between reloads, they're going to bite you to death. And with those chain gunners, yeah, just get the chain gun out because on fast monsters, they'll blast you right away. And there's certain sections where if you don't set up in fights, you're going to run out of ammo. And you're not going to fist all these monsters unless you're Decino. He can do it. I can't. So you have to set up some of these infights going on. Oh yeah, he's he's like a kung fu master. He's a ninth degree black belt in Doom for sure. Like, yeah, and I really love seeing that kind of stuff. And at the end, of, it's inspiring. At the end of Doom sixty four, you, I was like, I wasn't sure how the mother, the final battle would go because I was doing pistol start. I was not going to use the uh, unmaker, and yeah. um, and so what I discovered is like on fast monsters, if I can. The enemies there are flagged not to infight, so you can't set up infighting. But I realized if I was circle strafing, I could get them to friendly fire each other, and that would eliminate yep. a lot of them. And I noticed that too. Yeah, yeah, they'll just friendly fire and slowly wear each other down. Then I was calculating how many uh, BFG shots I can do on a mother demon. I think if you're perfect, you can get two. But if you're, uh, but that's only if you're really perfect. You might be able to get her down in two, like a cyber demon. But it's yeah. uh, to be safe. It's four. So I was like, okay, I might I can use two, maybe three, two or three BFG shots. But I need to save it for the mother demon. And just having that strategy in your mind, just having these levels of depth. And I was lucky that I was able to get to that final stage and beat it the first recording, and just get through the mother demon by just getting in her face and BFG blasting her, and uh, not not fearing and running to the corner. Yeah. 
Yeah. So if you look at Decino's playthrough and I my playthrough of approaching Mahjimi, we take it two different, very different ways. And my way was I learned from watching some speedrunners how they would handle the mother demon and just get in her face and BFG blast her while he does a few BFG blasts and he goes on the outside and rockets. Yeah. So, so even at playing games at these old school games at very high levels, you get the freedom to choose whether you want a BFG blast or you want a pellet from rockets. And it's, it's a nice way of approaching a game. I would like to see the mother demon become more like common. It, as you said, like hopefully we'll get a lot more of that as the, the doom 64, like, custom mapping community moves along but yeah. like i think she's such a great addition to the palette and it's like i i wish that were more common in like the the id software like modern bethesda doom games too like that should be an excellent thing to have in there um honestly you know some of those enemies i just straight up don't like the angel things like get that shit out of here oh <laughs> yeah yeah and eternal yeah the flying yeah. ones yeah 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 well it's interesting um i know people on both sides on doom eternal you know, because uh, as uh, as that you had that debate episode, and as the way the scribe it has a specific kind of pattern that you approach it with, and the people that like that pattern understand it, Doom Eternal is the ten out of ten for them. But then for the others yeah. that have a different type of approach, they have a hard time even getting traction in it. You know, yeah, it just doesn't lend itself to playing it your own way, which is. Fine, like it's very Soulsborne action FPS, like a like Devil May Cry esque, I guess, where it's that you're just kind of expected to play the game in a certain way, and that's okay. Like I'm not like I'm not trying to bring down Doom Eternal or anything. It's just that was not what I want in my gameplay experience. Yeah. Well, like um, what the Doom community tends to agree on is there hasn't been a bad Doom game. There's just been various styles that fit for various types of people. Oh, yeah. And all these, and it's interesting. Um, like, people are rank, like, all the Doom games are good, but they rank them in different ways. And the, it's interesting, like, like, Doom 1 and Doom 2 players, pretty much all of them have played some, some Eternal. But then a lot of these Eternal players are playing Doom 1 and 2. So it kind of like, Everyone's playing every game in the Doom series and finding out and putting their own hierarchy in it, but everyone's yeah. all Doom fans in the end. People people tend to, like the angrier people, tend to get angry. Like, this shouldn't exist. Like, the, game, the old games are still there, and anything that makes the Doom brand more popular ultimately means that more people's eyeballs are on it, so... Even if there are, you know, most people are just going to play, you know, Doom 2016 and Doom Eternal and never look back, a portion of those people will, you know, what if it's 1%, 1% is more than we were getting before. So, yeah, yeah, we need it cross pollinates. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and I, I can give it Hugo and all of them at it at props for trying something new with Doom Eternal. You know, trying a new mechanic because there's not any FPS out there quite like it. You know, and it's these AAA companies that can afford to take a big risk and not have to fire all their staff. It's like when you uh, when you're getting into music and you know you have the the older guy who knows all the really you know the really cool bands. So like, I'm not a fan of like the radio rock metal stuff at all in fact i it kind of makes me want to like stick a knife in my you ears mean, when uh, i hear mean, some of it uh butt rock 
Well, well, like I'm thinking like the, the when you sell something that's supposed to be like counterculture, but yeah. it's actually just totally homogenized, like uh, Five Finger Death Punch, right? They're an insanely popular, very talented band. That sound is not for me. Mm-hmm. But if I meet a kid and he's like, yeah, I'm really into Five Finger Death Punch. Like, I'm not like that band fucking sucks and you're lame because that's whatever. Like, all it does is create tension. But I'll be like, have you heard of Mastodon? Like, that's that's what you want to do. You like kind of that's your gateway. And then you introduce them into the the harder drugs. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a, and that's why I've always kind of felt with gaming itself. It's it's a cultural pathway that you find your way through. And so mm-hmm. a lot of people, like when they first seen Doom sixty four, they had a back on the N sixty four. It kind of has to sit with them for a while for them to fully get it. They had to play around yeah. some games like. Like Duke Nukem 64 would probably more, be more appealing right off the bat because of how wacky it is. You can flip all the switches. You can blow through walls. But then as time goes on, then you more you get used to the mechanics in Duke Nukem, then you could approach Doom 64, which is more of yeah. a, a stripped-down, bare-bones, you're here suffering, and you only get rocky music if you be a level. Right. Kind of approach. Yeah, and and... Overall, it's been nice just seeing the influx into the community. Like we have, there's like that, um, what it kind of was like, it was like Doom Four for Doom, which was has all of that mm-hmm. Doom Eternal, uh, Doom 2016 kind of, but in sprite form, in old school Doom. So yep. it's kind of mixing back and forth. And I'm a part of a project called uh, Dead Tech, where it's hell-infested tech bases, tech-infested hell bases, and it has a lot of the bigger members of the Doom community on it. So it has people like uh, Bridgeburner is going to make a map for it, Major Arlene. He's ama- his Twitch channel is amazing, too. Yes, yes. He shows how you can be a mapper, create a good community, and keep things going. Like his Hellforge Discord is always off the rails. But in a good way, right? He's a really, really amazing music too. Like he's got good. That's a guy that you should go to. Kids, if you if you like heavy music, go watch Bridge Burner's stream. Yeah, and just like ask him what he like. What are you listening to, bro? Because it's always good shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You always have some some pretty good metal going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's other people on there like uh, Wolf McBear, Jark, Chester, Alper, Cato, Zargent, and there's there's more. And what it is, it's a a community project where there's going to be a hub and you can choose your levels kind of like quake style. Right. Mm-hmm. But, and the atmosphere is kind of like doom three, the, the dark foreboding atmosphere, but has the doom 64 sprites sounds and enemies. So it's kind of like this yeah. merger of realities where it's kind of like if doom three had a uh, more old school approach of doom and I've seen some of the maps for it and I'm helping put, together the doom 64 assets and sounds for it and i've been doing some sprite edits so i've took photos of an object in my house and i made an enemy in that game for that dead tech project so there's going to be a custom sprite me trying to just spend hours just getting it right and uh, it's just a cat it's a house cat (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so yeah, so there's this project going on. You can find it on Doom World, and it's just amazing getting these mappers with a lot of experience 
letting me put my Doom 64 stuff in it. You know, they don't have to let me do that. They're they're Doom One and Doom Two mappers. They don't have to let me put my Doom 64 stuff in there, but they let me, and they're happily using the Doom 64 sprites and stuff to make these amazing maps. And it's going to have uh, it's going to be a, a for GZ Doom, so it'll have like the na- dynamic lighting that you know that Major Arlene and Bridge Burner used to make their maps look amazing. And hopefully it doesn't kill your computers. I can't wait to see what they've been working on. Cause he's been working on that shit for quite a while now. And I've been like kind of privately messaging bridge burner, like on Twitter or whatever. Like, hey, what, what is this thing you're working on? Like, cause I mean, it's really, I, I want to have like a million, million people on the podcast, but I have to like kind of select when is the time, right? Yes. Yes. And, yeah. and bridge has also that age of hell that he's working on with, that, which mm-hmm. has, he has the Mr. Cat making all these fantastic 3d models and the, I roast him every now and then. It's like, oh, that mall looks like it would belong in Doom 64. And he's yeah. like, just stop talking about Doom 64 already. No, he doesn't say that. But yeah, and uh, Age of Hell is going to be a free project. You know, Bridge doesn't have to make it free, but it is going to be a free project. And it's going to have its own IWAD. So if you don't own Doom 2, you can still download Age of Hell and uh, play it without having Doom 2. Yeah it's funny that he's giving it away for free because I've been kind of preaching the for a while now, like you don't have to have the doom I wide for GZ doom. So if you make a custom total conversion in GZ doom, you can sell it. And I want people to make money if they need it. You definitely. And, or if that's just something they want to do, cause these kids got to eat, bro. Like everybody, everybody's got to eat, but yeah, it's weird. It is weird and contentious and all that kind of shit, but I don't care. I want the, these people to continue to do what they do. Yeah. And if they need to make well, money in order to do that, then I say, go for it. Like um, there's a few people that are set up like Patreons and stuff that are related to the doom community. And you will get a, yep. f- a few people that will react negatively to it. But if you see the topics, the vast majority of responses are positive. And we know like these people should be uh, compensated for the hard work they do. I mean, they're young. A lot of them are young. A lot of them are starting out. A lot of them are just trying to live their dream of becoming a game developer. And anything you can yep. do to push them that way, just go for it, you know? Help them out. I already have a, a nice career. So I'm trying... So if I get any of any change, I'm putting it back into, like, one like one of these indie projects, like Exophobia or, like, Carry On recently, I've been which became much more of a big release. And then, yeah. and then Proteus, you know, just putting uh, back Kickstarter, is backing that Kickstarter, you know, even though, even though I'm not sure how well my laptop can run it, you know, just helping people out who want to live their dream of being an independent in- indie studio, you know. Speaking of Kickstarters, Stephen Kick, if you're hearing this, I want my fucking t-shirts, bro. I bought some uh, some really sweet looking System Shock t shirts, and I'm, I don't know when they're supposed to come out. I bet it's weird now with all the changes in shipping. You know, probably- yeah. Well, I think I think it's like a it's probably on me a hundred percent. Like I I probably didn't read the fine text. I probably had like a little too much to drink and and spent a little too much money on some t shirts. To be honest with you, but it's worth it because I really want to support everything Night Dive does. Yes, and. Yes. I I'm sure it says like t-shirts will be released, you know, at this time or like when we reach this amount or whatever. And I, I don't know. I just want my t-shirts. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. They're a fantastic team, you know, like the night mm-hmm. dive, the new 3d realms and new blood. And there's, there's all these people that are coming up, you know, I got to get Sam on the show. 
like I, I've been messaging, trying to see if I could make it happen. It's just not worked out yet, but he would be an amazing guest, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, I listened to him on Digital Foundry, and he's one of those types that he's a great interview. It's just a matter of getting him on because he, he, he's one of those guys that kind of sits back. He doesn't, he doesn't cause any trouble. He just wants to help out wherever he can. You know, mm-hmm. you see, like, you see all these old projects, and you you find his name on there, you know, he's, cause he's, he's like a big name now, but he's still, he helps out wherever he can. And it's amazing. He's done a great job of, you know, rising to the occasion. Like he, you know, he's got his job now at night dive. He's doing amazing work, but he's, you know, brought the whole doom community with him, which is fantastic. That's what I want to see. I just love his work, dude. Like the Kex engine is super impressive. The Turok re-releases are like, wow. And all this stuff that they're turning out over there. It's like unbelievable. Yeah. What night dive has uh, been able to do. Yeah. I recently played the Turok two multiplayer and Mm -hmm. we were, uh, it was like, Oh, let's do a multiplayer day and kick, click on the game, game, click on your friend. Oh, it works. Wait a second. This works like that. And it was amazing port. It was never so easy to set up a multiplayer back in the day. I really want a easily accessible, build engine multiplayer port Mm -hmm. like really bad because i I was trying to help someone like desperately trying to port forward their shit to get uh in blood working the other day and it's just like fuck that we we live in a we live in 2020 we don't have we should not have to do this yeah 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 recently uh for a different kind of multiplayer i had to go through basically the isp to say open my Mm -hmm. ports disable your so-called advanced security so i can set up a server for people to connect to you know yeah. and night dive shows like with the turok engine that they can do it you know it's just a matter of them getting enough time and funding to do such things you know and it's kind of a, a bummer that w- they they did all that work on blood and then atari's like nope we don't have more funding you guys just have to sit on it now <laughs> so do you you want to hear about the thing that i've been hinting at Oh yeah, yeah. So, uh, you you have some knowledge before I got knowledge, and this will come out before I get to before this episode gets to come out. Yeah. So, um, Realms Deep. At, I think I timed this pretty good. It's going to be like a week or maybe two weeks before yeah, yeah. Realms Deep. So, so everyone else might have got to hear it, but this is the first time I get to hear it. Uh, well, it's good because I want to keep promoting it as the episodes go along. So. Uh, Realms Deep 2020, people have uh, probably already heard about it, but if this is your first time hearing about it, I'll explain it to you too. The uh, This has been the coolest project I think I've ever been involved in. Uh, Fred Shriver uh, over at 3D Realms, he's the vice president there. Uh, he's been on the show before, and I guess he liked it. So they're putting on this digital convention, right? Realms Deep is going to involve 3D Realms, Night Dive, Apogee, um new blood the whole the whole retro shooter crew essentially nice and he's like i need to do these interviews would you like to you know have in the keep podcast kind of like the feature interview on the show so we're doing interviews we've already done ones with uh hopefully by the time this airs i've done a few more but like john st john we did Cliff Blazitsky from Unreal and you know Gears of War and all that kind of shit we've had uh Tim Willits on Oh, man. And yeah, and Chuck Jones, who did all of the uh, character design for like, you know, Duke Nukem and for uh, Counter-Strike and all, just everything. And it's been 
fucking amazing. Like, because ch- you have the ability now. Like, I'm leveraging Fred basically. Like, put me in contact with these people I ordinarily wouldn't be able to. Yeah. And so I'm going to release all of these episodes at, in full on the podcast. So you're going to that week, people are just going to get nuked with like a whole bunch of really long, awesome interviews. I'll probably take that week off of the normal podcast. Um, so we'll release it there. We'll release it on our YouTube channel. It'll also be on 3d realms YouTube channel. And during the convention, we have like these really cool edited, uh, shorter versions of the interviews, like 15 minutes or so. And just, you know, with some really nice, like gameplay overlays and lower thirds explaining what's going on, that kind of shit. Uh, man, that's pretty sweet, man. But Jahar is over here. Uh, scarecrow, everybody at 3d realms, like Chris is, uh, Chris Holden has been around too. It's amazing. It's been sleepless nights, though. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, to get all those names on there and f- just scheduling it, you know, and and uh, I bet just having talking through those guys because those guys, like, whenever I hear their interviews, they're always pretty cool dudes. Mm-hmm. And but then they have so much to say, so it's 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 a lot of work, you know. Cliffy B has a lot to say. I mean, Cliff Lazitsky is a cool dude, and as as you talk to like AAA developers, it, it, I don't want to like shoot myself in the foot and end up in a bad situation later. But a lot of these guys seem very you know out of touch, like with reality or with like what people want. Or the worst thing to me is I'm not criticizing anyone. I just I really it hurts my soul when I hear someone obviously uh, curbing what they want to say or having to self justify an opinion because you know it has something to do with the situation they're in and that sucks. Like I want to hear people be totally open and honest his interview specifically. And all of them are really cool, but he is such an open, honest down to earth guy who really like respects the the developers that have helped him get to where he is and that are currently working in the industry. It's amazing. And getting to hear like the minds that like Tim Willett's talking about level design for, you know, hours on end. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There's so many, le- there's so many levels to it, right? Yeah, that just you, you can be mapping for years and years and years, and you're just climbing up these rungs, you know. And just any tidbit helps, you know. I can, uh, I can cut this part out, but if, if everything goes according to plan in, like, maybe a couple hours, I'm gonna be interviewing American McGee. Oh so, yeah. yeah, that's going to be cool too, and we'll see how that turns out. Hopefully, I'll have yeah. more to say about it by the time uh, this episode airs. But yeah, dude, I bet I bet so many people are wish they were in your shoes to see to meet all these people and talk with them. I mean, the, out of the ones you mentioned, the only person I met was John Saint John, and I got mm-hmm. him to sign my Duke Nukem sixty four cartridge, and my wife did her his her best uh, Duke Nukem accent. We uh. John St. John was really super cool too, just because he he's a really entertaining person and just having that whole conversation with him was like nonstop. Just like, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> like, this is so hilarious all the way through. And he actually, he was in a, he was a radio broadcaster before he was in video games. And he used to live uh, in my hometown and did a radio show on our local radio station. Yeah. Well, when I heard, I, that doesn't surprise me because when mm-hmm. I heard, uh, John St. John and Iron Fury, I didn't re- realize it was him at first. And then I later discovered, like, whoa, that was John St. John. Man, mm-hmm. he got some range on him. Dr. Heskel. Yeah. No, he's got yeah. a crazy range. Like, he's not just, 
you know, the, it, we talk about just voice acting in general and how some voice actors are just like, they just do their voice and that's it. And then there's these people who like, like him and like, like Mark Hamill, great example, who just can do a million voice, the man of a thousand voices kind of thing. Yeah. It's really, really cool. Yeah. And that, um, Johnson John can get that little groveliness to his mm-hmm. voice, which is hard. You don't hear a lot of voice actors pull that off, but John St. John, he has the, I don't know, maybe the genetic gift to pull that kind of tone off, which makes a good Duke Nukem or Dr. Heskell. The uh, the coolest thing about this, though, uh, the interviews are amazing. And obviously, like, I, I love having the podcast. As you said, like, these are people that, you know, we're not all going to get the chance to talk to. So I'm just taking it as like, that's why a podcast exists. I'm trying to get these conversations available to people who could not otherwise have them and, and ask the questions that, you know, I want to hear. And hopefully that's the questions they would ask. But the, the best part about it is none of that. It's uh, Fred gave me the opportunity to like, I want to feature indie games in this, like find the best, you know, uh, retro FPS or whatever video games that would fit into this kind of thing. Reach out to the developers. We're going to show trailers. And now in the, in the internal discord, it's like, the greatest group of game developers all, you know, all day long talking about, you know, their different projects and the the ways that they approach things and everything. And that has been such a gift, you know, like having Sergeant Mark in there asking questions and Scarecrow, he can't even talk about his game yet, but we'll, we'll see at the convention and all of these amazing Osreek is there from Viscera Fest. I I can't possibly name them all right now. It's just fucking crazy. Cool. To, and I know you've mentioned some names that are working on an FPS, mm-hmm. and I don't know if they've announced it yet or not. So by the time this podcast goes released, is released, so yeah, wait, we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah, we'll see what happens. But, but yeah, well, the nice thing is, like, for at least me, after then sixty four, the um, there were some still remnants of these retro FPS. Libet was like in Serious Sam and in Painkiller, but it actually felt like Dark Days because uh, first-person shooters was aiming for the general, the biggest audience possible. Mm-hmm. So that's the military shooters were more palatable for everyone. But then these retro FPSs were just in a niche. And for us, it's like, oh, it's kind of like Dark Days. But I imagine for like a lot of these old-school developers, it's like, man... Either I'm going to have to make a military shooter or else I'm not going to have a job. So I'm hoping now that they see this kind of revival happening and then that uh, that Realms 2020 is bringing all these people together that they like, oh, we can get this going again. There's an audience out here and everyone's just waiting. It, you know, like we would, uh, it was around like when the Proteus Kickstarter happened, we would, it was like a group of us we'll be in the Proteus server, but then we'd be in the 3D Realm server. We'll be in um, some of these smaller, like uh, Hell Screen server. Mm-hmm. And it would be the same group. We're like addicts looking for our next fix, trying to get these FPS games. Yeah. And yeah, I'm glad that they're noticing that there's an audience. You know, Frederick Schreiber was talking about how there's an audience now, and I, hopefully it continues for them. You know, I hope they get, continue to be encouraged to make games. Well, it's, when you get a bunch of really cool creative people together in any situation, like they 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 become more powerful, and yeah, they can collaborate and they solve problems much faster. As I said before, it any anything you're doing, it's all about networking, and that seems to be. If I have one talent, it's that I'm pretty good at 
you know, reaching out. I'm not afraid to reach out to people at, at the very least. Like, yeah, because people, somebody asked me recently, how do you get all these guests? I'm like, I just drink a lot of beer and I'm not afraid to, you know, message someone at 2 a.m. in the morning or dig up their email and, or whatever it is and just like ask. And if they don't respond, fuck it, whatever. Like, I don't lose anything from that. Like, yeah. And I remember from like a podcast a while, while back, you were talking about the award shows and mm-hmm. how about having like a personality or a community guy of the year. And a lot of people don't realize how vital having these community people on there, like, like someone to have set up the doom world forums and keep it going like dump truck, keeping the like mapping yeah. discord going because it creates a hub where people can synergize. And if you have a question of how to get through this programming hurdle, someone's likely to be there, you know, like, like when I created that Doom 64 Discord, we figured out how to put in custom music in Doom 64 EX 10 years later after it came out, you know, just by creating a spot where people can, can connect, you know. And so it, let, let me, if there's anyone out there that has a favorite game and they're sad it no longer is being uh, talked about, make a Discord, make a, a form on it you know the worst that can happen is people stop talking on about it but if you're obsessed enough to keep talking about it you know people eventually you'll find like-minded people to keep it going i'm so like in love with the the way that the community has grown directly because of what you said and one of the things that you were just talking about is how you know there are so many people in the background doing things that people kind of you don't realize or take for granted or it just doesn't get talked about in, in the public eye enough. And like, you're a perfect example. Like the show has a lot of straight up like game developers on it, but I've always wanted the keep to be about the community. And so what I see is like, okay, when realms deep happens, I'm going to have like probably a YouTube video with God knows how much, you know, of an interview with Cliffy B and my, absolute hope is that people like like the channel and then they hear an episode with you you know because or or with dump truck or with any you know any of these people jcr uh maybe just an indie developer that's not not quite famous or whatever like i just want that to be a trickle down effect so that people grow to appreciate this kind of stuff you're i mean your music has done so much for this community and just in general man like you're just a cool motherfucker i would talk to you for two three hours period no matter what and I'd like to do it again. Let's go grab a beer whenever COVID fucking goes away. Yeah, fa- finally go back out West where I was born and raised. And you've been not just a really cool person to like have in the discord, but you've been like a loyal as hell listener. Like I actually can't believe some of the times I'm like, Oh man, he listens to all of these. And you, you always like are so generous with like giving feedback. And like, this is what I think about that subject and like engaging and that's what is needed. You know, um, listening is great and that's all I really want people to do. But when people engage with it, that allows the other people to also engage with it. And once you have a personal connection to something, it grows. Uh, that's how it works. Like you, you have a personal connection to something you care about it more than just on the base level. Like, you know, if you want a podcast to grow, you want people to like, not just, Oh, like I, I see that guest. Uh, I'm going to click on that. He's like, oh, I have a relationship now with the mother loader, you know, Joe Rogan or whoever, and I want to support whatever that is, or, or I trust them to curate good content. So hopefully it works in that favor over time. This has been really fucking fun, man. I'm super glad we finally got you on the show, and I want you to be on again as often as you want to be. 
but uh, closing thoughts, anything, shout outs you want to kind of give? Yeah, I can talk forever. Um, <laughs> if anyone wants to find me, just Immorpher. I'm Immorpher64 on Twitter. I'm Immorpher on YouTube, Immorpher on Bandcamp. Those are the main places to find me. I, I hang around Doomworld forums too. I'm on all kinds of crazy ass discords, including the keep. <laughs> um, I, I appreciate um, all the hard work a modders put in the community. If you ever want to use my work, just feel free, free to ask me. And the only reason why I, I ask people to ask is I like to see what you're doing. I like to promote good stuff. So, and I feel like if you're using my music, you must be a weirdo like me. So just share it with me and I'll, be happy to promote and help it and help out any way I can. We'll get a scumhead his hookup real like as soon as I'm done with this, I'll probably message him and be like, use it. It's good. Green lights. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Man. Yeah. 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 And uh, keep an eye, eye, eye out. I have uh, Dead Tech is going to come out. There's, uh, I've been working on a Doom 64 sprite and sound replacement based on Evander's. Doom 64 Retribution for uh, Zandronum and whatnot. And there's uh, the Quake Finish Mapperage Jam 2. It's getting a sequel. So you mentioned you loved Smile Scythe's map. All the same guys are returning, so you get to have another one of those. And yeah, yeah, just keep an eye out. A lot of good stuff is happening. Much appreciated, brother. I'll see you again very soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. See ya. Huge thank you once again to Amorpher for uh, the amazing idea to have this episode and for finally, you know, being on the podcast. It's been such a trip just getting to know him and everything. If you are enjoying this fucked up music that is uh, going on behind my voice, I recommend you head on over right now to amorpher.bandcamp.com and buy all of his music. He's got like six albums on there and they're amazing with beautiful artwork send them to your friends send them to your grandma whatever just enjoy it man uh he's he's done a lot for this community and for the keep especially also want to say thank you to all of you out there listening you know who you are you're amazing people the best thing you can do for this podcast is to uh listen to it obviously and tell other people that you listen to it spread the word go on social media if you see it on twitter or if you just feel like saying hey i like this episode reach out like, subscribe, review on like iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast. YouTube doesn't matter. It's a it's a huge help, truly. I want to say thank you to the people who support this podcast, and it's a ever growing and ever changing list. But gonna say thanks to Dots, Moose, Paul, Zach, Alexander, Brad, Night Owl, Tones, Jeffrey, Larissa, Nabe, Steve, Jazz, Cash, Donkey, VJ, Tenjin. Hadoukant, Brand Flakes, Moleketrao, Red Eyes Green Dragon, Anthony, Robert, Vince, Immorpher, Igrak Simon, Gelmosan, Russell, and Void Inc. You are all greatly appreciated. If you're listening and you're like, how do I get a shout out on the show? Head on over to inthekeep.com, click on the support tab. You'll find links to all the different ways you can support. There's like a Venmo, there's a PayPal, there's even straight up credit card donations. Or if you want to get something back for it, become a subscriber on our Patreon page. If you donate more than like 25 bucks 
over time, doesn't have to be right now, but over time, we'll hook you up with a high quality in the keep t-shirt on the house, kind of. But, you know, we got to give back in some way. And we're trying to come up with other ways to kind of give back to you. If you have ideas, let us know. Like, I, I can figure it out. Also, everyone who supports gets the episodes early. And if you donate in some other way, like if you go through the credit card shit and you give 25 bucks, like, yeah, just let me know. I'll hook you up with a t-shirt. It's just, you got to let me know. Join the Discord. Be part of the community. Uh, follow us on all of our social medias and shit. It's all on the website, in thekeep.com. We also have merch there, too. If you don't already know about this um, we have some really cool t-shirts available on redbubble we've got stickers we've got you know everything redbubble does we've got that go go check that out that's really cool <laughs> if you like this shit you will also like vent steel on youtube you will like quakefans.net rocketjump.zone multiplayer doom federation join their discord get involved in some events same with the u.s quake community same with the keep thank you for listening thank you for hanging out And until next time, stay in the keep.